This sermon is all about bad advice. So let's start out with some things you should not do. Some bad advice. If you're too lazy to wash your cup, ever have that experience? You want to get something, you want to take a drink, but you don't want to wash the cup? There's a better disposable than plastic. You can use a pepper. (laughs) Get a pepper, fill it up. When you're done, just chuck it. No one likes peppers anyway. Just throw it away. (laughs) Costco pizza uses it, but that's because there's nowhere else for them to put the peppers. They just put on the pizza and hope you guys eat it. Throw away your pepper. Um, How about this? You have a friend over and she wants a cold glass of of water with, with ice, but you're like, oh man, I don't have any ice. Ice machine's broken. I have a solution for you. You can use frozen vegetables for your, for your drinks. Fancy hotels do this. They put, they put fruits and vegetables in the water container to give it an essence. You know, it's kind of like drinking LaCroix. It's like the essence of something is in there. I'm not a big fan of that. Do you guys like that? I'm not a big fan of that. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Uh, how about this? You guys know how... how quick the morning goes, right? You have to get ready really fast, and it just doesn't feel like there's enough time in the morning to get it all done. I have to eat breakfast still. I still have to brush my teeth. Well, what if you could do both of those things at the same time? Introducing toothpaste toast. (laughs) Toothpaste toast. Two birds, one stone. You've never been wiser, young person. Your belly will be full and your breath will be delicious. Smelling, I guess. (laughs) Toothpaste toast. Sometimes you feel lonely, right? We all go through that season of feeling a little anxious and lonely. Well, here's another solution for you. If you don't want to feel alone, you can watch a horror movie and you'll never feel alone again. (laughs) You'll always sense that there's someone in the room. (laughs) Not the kind of, you know, not the kind of presence you want necessarily, but there you go. So I hope you enjoy that bad advice. But here's the thing. I'm not done yet. I have three steps for you this morning for how to have a terrible life, some more bad advice. So this sermon is going to be different than anything else you've heard recently because the points are going to be points I don't want you to apply. All right, you ready for this? Three steps for a terrible life. We're going to go back to the gospel of Mark. And in the next, I don't know, five or six weeks or so, we are going to finish it, which I'm excited about. We're going to wrap up Mark. And as we enter into this particular passage, we are in Wednesday of Passion Week. Pop quiz, what is Passion Week? Correct, I think. Someone probably thought it, at least. It's the week that Christ is going to die. So it's the the final days leading up to Friday where he would be crucified, lifted up upon a cross, buried, and then rise again on Sunday. That's Passion Week, all that week leading up to it. So this is Passion Week. It's Wednesday. And this is where things get especially hot and heated. He's having a final confrontation with the religious leaders. Not a final one, actually, but a different one. Um, And this is a parable. A parable is uh, the word parabolos. It means to toss alongside something. So Jesus is telling a story where he's tossing alongside this story and comparing it to the reaction of the religious leaders. In fact, I should tell you before we jump into this that this passage isn't about you and I specifically. It's about how Israel's leaders rejected the Messiah, and even more than that, rejected the Messiah, rejected the servants. And as you'll see, Jesus is going to skillfully use this story to paint a picture about how they're responding to him. Now, another final piece of context that you should remember is Isaiah chapter 5. The reason that we're going to be so clear about this parable is because Isaiah chapter 5 tells us about who the vineyard owner is. And pop quiz at the end of this, I'll give you the answer now. The vineyard owner is God. All right? So with that said, here's the the story that Jesus tells to them. Starting at Mark chapter 12, verse 1, it says, He began to speak to them in parables, parabolos. 
A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And then he leased it to tenants and went into another country. Pretty common occurrence here. He he takes his property, makes it beautiful, sets it up for fullest possible productivity. And then he finds people like you and I who are able to care for the property. He gives it to them, and then he goes away to a far land. The expectation, of course, is that the, the tenants would properly cultivate and till the soil. They would take all the good resources that the owner had given them. And then when the owner came back, they would give him a, a portion of the produce and say, here's your reward, here's your rent, so to speak. And so the owner does everything he could do, should do, to provide them with a, 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 a harvest. So notice here, and he began, uh, verse 2, when the season came, owner's coming back, verse 2, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Common expected occurrence here. Now this is where the story takes a turn. Jesus loves telling controversial stories. He loves inciting some sense of passion here. And this is where the story gets interesting. And they took him, the servant, and they beat him. And they sent him away empty-handed. Okay, verse 4. Let's see what happens. And he sent to them another servant. That was gracious of the master. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Okay, well, surely the, the owner is going to come and do business now, right? Verse 5. And he sends another. And him they killed. And so, with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So notice that there's a, a kind of an escalation to the way that these people are treating the servants. Who are the people who we have in mind here? Well, I told you already that the, one, the first player in the game here is God. He's the one who's planting the vineyard. Jesus is going to make this clear throughout the whole, the, the whole parable, but let me just help you understand at the beginning, because we're not going to read through the whole thing at first. The man who plants the vineyard is God. He's the one tending. Often, Jesus would, uh, God rather, would use the imagery of a vineyard to help uh, to help make an analogy between the vineyard and Israel. So the, the idea of a vineyard is a very common analogy in Scripture that God uses to say, this is Israel, like a vineyard. And the man who tends the vineyard is God himself. He's caring for it. He's protecting it. He's doing everything he should. Uh, John 15, you might remember Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. The concept of a vineyard is a very profitable one in Scripture because there's, there's so many ways you can look at it. Uh, the vineyard needs tending. It needs care. It needs constant attention. If it's going to produce a fruitful harvest, there, there's a lot of work on the side of the, the owner to make it happen. And so in this analogy, God is saying, it's like me as the vineyard owner. I give ownership over, or at least stewardship over to these tenants. Your job, tenants, is to make sure that you carefully steward the vineyard. You're to shepherd it. You're to tend it. You're to take out weeds. You're to guard it against enemies. Uh, you're to guard it against all things that would potentially threaten the, the, the health and the wellness of the vineyard. And so the analogy is great. God is the owner of the vineyard. He's the one who, who plants it, tends it, keeps it. But in this case, he lends it to tenants. And their job, the religious leaders, is, as I said, protect it, guard it, make sure they nurture it, make it a, a, helpful, uh, a helpful vineyard, something that produces good grapes, good fruit. The servants then in this particular analogy represent the prophets. And God sent prophet after prophet to Israel to say, please guys, just listen, repent, turn from your evil ways, do right, do, do good, don't, don't be evil, uh, don't do things that are, are rejecting God. Justin Martyr, one of the early writers in church history, accused the Jews of sawing Isaiah in half. You might remember in Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verse 17, it says here that in the, in the hall of faith that some people were actually sawn in half for their faith. Can you imagine that, by the way? What would it feel like to have a blade running across your belly, just chopping you in half? And then it gets to your spine, and then it just, I don't know, snaps maybe? 
At what point do you die in that? In any event, the prophets are, uh, are the servants in this analogy. Jeremiah was thrown into a pit. His work was burned. Uh, legend, uh, rather, uh, tradition says that he was stoned to death. Zechariah was another prophet who was rejected. He was also stoned to death, Second Chronicles 24 says. John the Baptist was the latest and greatest of the prophets, and he had his head chopped off for being faithful to the Word of God. So it's, it's kind of, I want to say comical, but not funny, ha-ha, but interesting how when God sends people to the, the people of Israel, their constant, their constant posture is the, the Heisman, you know, like, nope, 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 can't touch this. You know, they, they keep on pushing them away, and then more than that, taking the aggressive stance of, I'm not only going to push you, I'm going to kill you, and that's what happens in this story here. So those are the three characters in this drama. Now, I want to point out to you the very first thing that you should do if you want to have a terrible life is to do what these guys did. Take a look again. So if we're looking at these people and saying, okay, the servants are the prophets. What are the prophets' job? The prophets' job is to bring the word, to God, the word of God to bear on the people. And so when he goes to the religious leaders, they're saying, leaders, feed the sheep, protect the sheep, guard the sheep, give us fruitfulness. And the leaders say, we don't want you to have that kind of authority over us, so we're going to shut you out. We're going to kill you in order not to hear God's word. Point number one, to have a terrible life, first of all, start with despising God's word. You want to do life your own way and say, no, thank you, God. I don't want to hear what you have to say. You're on your way, well on your way, to having a life that is unfruitful, devastating, and painful. Despising God's word. That's a strong word, isn't it? Despising. It means to feel contempt for something, uh, to hate something. And there's a lot of things that we hate today. We might hate the person who sits next to us and isn't really, uh, they're oblivious to how much space they're taking up. That person who sits with like their legs like this and, you know, they're, they're stretching in your face. Like that person is annoying, especially on an airplane. Everyone gets mad at the guy who puts the seat back. You're like, well, why are you doing this? You know we don't have any room. It's angering. You don't like that. I hate that. We hate when a website doesn't let you use it unless you sign up. Or it says, hey, we noticed you're using an ad blocker. Will you please show us love and unblock that, you know, I'm like, no, we don't want to do it. I hate that. Uh, we hate when there's not a skip button on the video. It makes you watch 30 seconds, and I forget it. I'm not going to watch this anymore. I'm going <laughs> to stick it to the man. I'm not watching your video. We hate when your utensils fall on your food. You're eating your gravy with a fork, and it falls in. Like, oh, no. <laughs> you hate that because now you have a sticky fork in your hand. don't know why you're using a fork to eat gravy, but that's on you. I'm not going to ask questions. <laughs> it's between you and the Lord. <laughs> you and the Lord. I hate when signs are grammatically incorrect. By the way, is it hot in here? I'm getting warm up here. Can we turn the AC on? Or maybe just open the doors or come fan me, Evan. <laughs> just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I hate when, when signs are grammatically incorrect. Friends, like you see a sign like this. And it will, the, 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 the store will remain unnamed. <laughs> Associate will call you when there is. What's wrong with that? There. They're ready. We want to ensure all customers have a price. <laughs> hey, privacy. All right. <laughs> will you call? That's right. It says, will you call? Associate, will you call when they're ready? <laughs> we hate a lot of things, and probably rightly so. But one thing we shouldn't hate is the Word of God. And as I'm reading through the Proverbs lately, and I find out the Proverbs have a lot to say about the person who despises God's Word. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools. Let me just use the vernacular of the day. Dummies despise wisdom and instruction. Dumb people. Dumb people despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 13, 13. 
Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. He, he's hurting himself. It's like taking a hammer and banging it on your, on your finger over and over again. That's what it's like, the Bible says, to despise the word. But he who reveres, esteems, honors, exalts the commandment, that person is rewarded. Why? Because they're not despising the word, as most people do. Uh, Proverbs 15, 32, whoever ignores instruction despises himself. It's self-inflicted pain to say, I, I reject the word of God. But he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. I like that word intelligence. It's godly thinking, wise, thoughtful uh, intelligence. And reproof is not a word that means like, oh, that feels good. Reproof often is putting your finger in someone's chest and saying, you are the man, David. You're sinning. You're doing something wrong. Reproof is a corrective statement. It's something that has a bearing upon us and saying, you're not right. You need to be changed. So whenever we approach the word of God, it's just like the religious leaders. When God's word comes to bear on you, it's so easy for us to simply dismiss it and in that way despise it. And in fact, you might say, well, I don't despise the word of God, Pastor Rod. I just, sometimes I don't listen the way I should. But no, you might be despising it in certain ways. Let me offer you a few, a few options of how you might be doing this because it's not always so obvious. If I look at the life of the, the tenants, I think one of the things that they did that we can learn from is that we, they forgot their stewardship. You might be despising the word by forgetting the fact that you are a caretaker of someone else's property. You are a manager and not an owner. You are a renter. You're not the one who's making decisions. This is not your world. This is not your life. This is God's world. It's God's life he's given to you. You are simply a steward, a manager, and a caretaker of his gifts. Tenants should have given him rent. They should have given him much more than that, rent, honor, esteem, but they didn't do that. It's like the parable of the talents. Uh, the, the, the owner gives uh, the t- various number of talents to individuals, and he says, I'm going to go someplace, I'm going to come back, and I expect a return on my investment. Same thing is true in this particular situation. I heard a story recently about a, a lifeguard in, in Georgia who, who came across someone who was drowning, and they said, uh, lifeguard, please save this person. And the lifeguard said, I can't swim. That's a problem. <laughs> That's a problem. This was a couple years ago. But imagine this. The lifeguard gets called on, and the lifeguard is at the, at the tower. He can swim, and someone comes and says, lifeguard, lifeguard, uh, uh, Ian Lopez is drowning. Go save him. Lifeguard sits back and says, you know what? It's almost my lunchtime. Really t- I've had a long day. It was a really long night last night. I didn't sleep last night. AP test tomorrow. It's not a good time. Can he drown at a different time, you think? Would that be more helpful? What a terrible response that would be. And we would rightly indict that person because they've forgotten their stewardship. You're there to save lives. You're there to protect people. You're paid to protect them. And by the way, this same lifeguard apparently didn't know CPR either. So when they did bring the person out of the pool, he's like, I don't know what to do. Okay. You have a stewardship from God. Some of you are lifeguards in the fact that you're believers and you have the gospel entrusted to you and you are now a steward of the world's most precious story and gift. And you're called and commanded to give it out there. God's word says, go therefore and make disciples, not sit down and do it when you feel ready. It's a, it's a, it's a call for us to respond to God's word. And we can despise him when we simply say, you know, God, I know what your word says about this, this, and this, but I prefer not to do that. It's not a good time. My schedule's really busy. My girlfriend doesn't like when I talk to people about this thing. Uh, my dad is, is antagonistic toward my faith, and so it's harder. I know there's a lot of good reasons, but when we choose not to obey certain aspects of God's word because it doesn't fit our, our current desire, we're despising his word. We're looking down upon it rather than responding to it. Another way you might be doing this is if you don't respond to conviction, which I guess kind of lends itself to what I was just saying. 
When the prophets were sent to Israel, their job was to bring conviction and exhortation to Israel. In fact, I love that the way the prophets do it most often, they bring judgment. Israel, if you don't repent, God's going to destroy you, but God is faithful. He cares about you. You are the apple of his eye, so please do what you're supposed to do. And yet, Israel still struggled to do the right thing. When they felt that conviction, what they would do is not say, you know what, God, you're right. We should do something about this. More often than not, Israel would simply shut her ears out, close her eyes, and pretend like nothing was there. There's a story about this in Acts chapter 7 where you have Stephen, the very first martyr, who goes through a long dialogue. In fact, I think it's the longest in the book of Acts where he's, he has a sermon where he's saying, Israel, you guys are, you guys are such predictable people. Why? Because you're stiff-necked. You, you, you deliberately don't want to bend or bow. You're uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? All of them. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. That's Jesus. Whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Who you received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. All of this to say, Israel, you, you so often struggle with this because you're stiff-necked and hard-hearted. You refuse to respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now pause right there for a second and ask yourself, has there ever been a time when I've been sitting under good teaching and I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit and chose not to act upon that? Or maybe the fact that I felt it made me feel good. Like, oh, all right. My heart is beating, I feel conviction, and maybe that's enough for me. I don't want to necessarily do anything with it, but the fact that I feel it makes me feel good. If you're going to respond correctly to the Holy Spirit, it's a matter of saying, okay, God, not only what should I feel about this, but what should I do with this? That's how we should respond. Well, the tenants, instead of responding to the conviction, said, no, thank you, I'd rather kill your servant. Please don't kill me, by the way. Don't do that. Proverbs, uh, Mark chapter 12 again, going back to this. I want you to notice something. Look at this right here. How many times did God put up with the, with the tenants here? Take a look here. Take a look on the, on the screen. You have one servant in verse 3. They took him, beat him, sent him away empty-handed. You have another servant in verse 2. Again, he sent to them another servant. They struck him on the head, treated him shamefully. You have another servant in verse 5. They sent another, they killed him. But look at the second half of verse 5. You have four plus. So God sent at least five, at least in this scenario, at least five different servants to say, guys, please be reasonable here. This is not your property. Give the, give the owner what he is due. Those four times are obviously not literal transactions, but they're meant to showcase God's infinite patience with people. In fact, I put it like this. When, when you're thinking about whether or not you might be despising God's word, don't confuse his patience with, in, with his indifference. Sometimes we think, okay, God doesn't care about this. God doesn't ma- it doesn't matter that I've been you know, playing with porn this whole time. It doesn't matter that I continue to gossip or continue to do ABCD sin. I continue to listen to this, this music, although I know it dishonors God. I continue to watch this series. I've been watching it, you know, a couple times now, even though I know it dishonors God. I've done A, B, C, and D, and I'm going to continue and persist in those sins because God doesn't seem to care too much. He hasn't done anything with that. And I would say, letter C, don't confuse his patience with his indifference. See, Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So here's the idea. When you are persistent in your sin, whatever it is, Let's just use the easy one because it's, it's classic. You, you continue to go back to your secret websites and your secret sin. You go incognito, you hide your tracks, you DNS a different place. You're doing really good at covering your tracks, but you forget that God is fully aware, seeing in crystal clear HD, all that you're looking at, all that you're thinking, all that you're imagining. 
When God chooses not to expose your sin, is God simply saying, I don't care? Or is he saying, I care so much that I'm being patient with you, that you would be wise enough to humble yourself and say, God, I am such a fool. Will you please forgive me yet again? And, and before you expose me publicly to everyone else, let me go to my leader, my pastor, my, my bro, my sis, and say, sis, I have a problem. And I need you to know, 1 John 1, 9 tells me that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. I know that Jesus is my great high priest, but I need someone to help me because I continue to wrestle with a sin and I haven't gotten a handle on that. I'm of the opinion, and I think scripture bears this out, that if you persist in sin, Hebrews chapter 12 tells me that God is a, is a good father and he will discipline those whom he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. Which tells me that if you continue to persist in a certain sin, just like I imagine a good dad would, he's going to inflict some pain on you. And often that pain is exposure. You guys remember that Ashley Madison scenario? There was a, a website that was dedicated to adultery. Life is short, have an affair. That was their tagline. Remember that one? So someone hacked into their servers and leaked all of the email addresses and passwords or whatever else it was. Suddenly, all over the nation and the world, I, sus I suspect, people's phone numbers and email addresses were being revealed for all people to see. You had pastors and doctors and lawyers and all different sorts of people who were exposed. Turns out the website itself was a sham because there were bots and not ladies on the other end. But the idea behind this is that everyone's information, all their dirty, dark secrets that they hid into a closet hoping no one would ever find, was exposed for everyone to see. And again, some of those guys were pastors. And I thought, how tragic. Because I'm sure their conscience and the Holy Spirit paying them over and over again, stop, don't do this. This is foolish, this is wrong. And at some point, because God is gracious and God is kind and loving, God said, all right, then I'm going to expose you to everybody. Now, not only does your spouse know, but everybody knows. The world knows. And what a black guy in the name of Christ, right? People who are saying they're Christians, following Christ, and yet here they are committing adultery, at least trying to commit adultery. God's inactivity isn't God's indifference. It is his patience. Wherever you find yourself this morning with sin that you've been wrestling with, understand that if God has not yet exposed you and dealt with you painfully, it is God's patience with you. Your job is to let that conviction drive you to repentance. God wasn't done. This is amazing because God not only sends servants, but he's got an ace of spades. We see that in verse 6. His ace of spades, this is his final card. This is what he's hoping will win them over. In verse 6, it says this. He still had one other, one other servant, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son, but Verse 7, those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and then the inheritance will be all ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. It's interesting to think about why they did that. You, you might say, well, how does that logic work out? They kill the son, suddenly the property becomes theirs. Whatever they're thinking is, the point is that God expected in this scenario that when he sends his son, his one and only son, his beloved son, that they would surely respond to this, right? Surely they'll see, oh man, it's his son. Okay, this, this patient owner, he means it. And look at his grace. He sent another person. And not only did he send us five servants, but he sent us his son. Okay, guys, let's, let's just put down our arms and... Show honor and deference to the son. They did not do that. Step two, if you want to have a terrible life, is to dishonor God's son. That's exactly what the tenants did. 
By the way, did I make clear yet? This is not the point I want you to apply. Don't dishonor God's son, okay? Step number two is dishonor God's son, but don't do that. That's the opposite of what I'm trying to say. Dishonor God's son. If you really want to get a dad mad, you mess with their kids, right? If you want to get someone upset, you mess with someone close to them. Some of you guys know this story, but it, it works so well, so bear with me. Some of you guys know that I come from a gang-banging family, which, which explains why you fear me. It's not funny. I had a gangster dad. <laughs> I had a cholo dad who, who still in many ways looks like a cholo. Someday I'll bring him to Compass and I'll introduce to you my dad that you think doesn't exist. But he looks a lot like this. <laughs> if you're going to dress the part of a cholo, you got to button the top button and then unbutton the rest of them. And then you'll notice it's kind of a flannel, right? It's a dark flannel. Dark flannel, even dark flannel. The, the, the belt, a military flip belt, that's pretty standard fare, standard issue for cholos. Now, the pants are important. It's, they got to be baggy enough where you can fit a weapon or two in there. So they're usually typically pretty baggy. But see, they're not, <laughs> they're not just like shaggy baggy. They're, 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 you notice the guy has a crease. Ironed creased jeans are a staple in cholo fashion. They got to be such good creases that if I accidentally hit you with that crease, you would bleed because you got cut. They got to be sharp creases. And then, of course, to top it all off, the Nike Cortez. Nike Cortez are a classic. You can get them for 60 bucks. They're still widely sold, I think, because the cholos still buy them. It's all that they have that's cholo fashion. Now, imagine someone I kind of look like, and that's, that's me, right? That's my dad. Keep that figure in mind as I tell you the story. My brother was having some trouble with a neighbor across the street. Brother's like this tall. He, and my brother, some of you guys saw him. He's a cancer survivor. And so he's shorter than the average person because the chemo and radiation therapy really stunted his growth. Uh, anyway, long story short, he didn't have the, the strength or the height to deal with this guy across the street. So I said, oh, I'll go talk to him. I went across the street. I'm trying to have a conversation. And then I step up. I said, dude, you got to leave my brother alone. And the guy said, what are you going to do about it? So... I, I'm making an assessment here, thinking whether or not I want to fight the guy. And I decided, you know what, I don't want to fight him. I don't, I don't know. I was a fighter back then, but I didn't know if I could win. So I said, all right, I'll be back. Go inside, pick up the rotary phone. I call my dad. I said, Dad, I have an issue. He lived a couple hours away at this point. I said, I have this guy across the street who's messing with us. Can you come help? He said, I'll be there in a few hours. Dad rolls up a couple hours later. I tell him the situation. We walk across the street, knocks on the neighbor's door and says, I want to talk to you, the guy's name. And they, they, no one's coming out. So he keeps knocking and, and now no one's, no one's responding to him. Now he's kind of pacing like a caged lion on the front lawn, you know, with a, with a, a cholo swag, you know, <laughs> just waiting to knock this dude out. Finally, he comes out with his parents and his parents are like, oh, we don't want any problems. We don't want any problems. And my dad's like, well, do we have a problem? He's the one who's messing with my family. And the guy's like, I'm so sorry. You don't want any issues. That was a big misunderstanding. You know, apologizing profusely. It was one of the proudest days of my life looking at my dad like, yeah, <laughs> now what? You know, <laughs> what you going to do? It was amazing. Amazing. But that's the thing. My dad rolled up like a thug because he, someone was messing with his kids. Now, if that's my earthly dad, who by no means is perfect, you know, we all have our issues, how do you think a heavenly father feels when he sends his son to us and we give him the cold shoulder or we start, in this case, beating him and killing him? Of course, God's going to respond to that. And you're going to see that in our third point. But you might be dishonoring God's son, and God would hate that 
pay for that to happen. So how might you be dishonoring God's son? I think one of the things that we can easily do is not cherish the person and work of the son. God expects us to look at Jesus and say, they will respect my son. He's my beloved son. And because Jesus is precious to the father, Jesus expects the son to be, rather, the father expects Jesus to be precious to us. And not only to be precious as a person because, oh, he's God's son, that's important, but also to say, well, look what the son has done for us. We're looking ahead in the story, obviously, because by this point in the narrative, Jesus hasn't died on the cross, but we know he's going to. So when we think about Jesus, the son, the beloved son, we have to understand that there's illusions taking place here. This is, uh, this is the, the sacrificial son who would be lifted up for our behalf, and, and God expects us to respond to that. You might remember in Mark chapter 1, Jesus was commended by the father. The father says, this is my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. That's what he says at the beginning of the book. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that they're so united that to see Christ is to see God in the flesh. And sometimes we, we charge God, and a lot of people do, charge God with being an egomaniac. God is so wrapped up in his glory, his kingdom, his honor. Why is it about God? Why does it seem like all the time people are, Christians are telling people like, oh, you should give honor and glory to God. Well, why does God need that from us? Why is God so needy for our praise and adulation? When he, if he's God, that seems like a character defect. If I were to do that, or if Ian were to do that, and, tell, and he says, tell me how beautiful I am, or handsome. Ian were to come to you and say, tell me how handsome I am. You would be like, all right, bro, but that's weird. <laughs> you have issues, insecurity. In fact, some people think of God in that way. Like, why is God so insecure that he needs our praise and adulation? And the case is that it's, it's not what you think it is. In fact, let me just point a few things out here. In John 17, Jesus says things that you and I should never, ever say. He starts with this. When Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Let me encourage you never to pray that. Okay? You should never say, glorify me, that I may glorify you. Glorify me can, can only be appropriate for the, the incarnate God-man to pray. I don't want to hear Ethan Strunk praying, glorify me, that I may glorify you. You should hear anyone praying that. Jesus prays that, and he continues, it gets, it gets better. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had, that, that, that I had with you before the world existed. So it's not even like Jesus is saying, hey, one-time thing here. He's saying, remember that glory we shared before I was put into the flesh? I want that back. I want to now be exalted with you as I was before I was encased in flesh and humbled myself. Jesus is acting in a way that for most of us, any single one of us, it would be so inappropriate to the point of being uh, disgusting, like, ah, oh, I just hate that about you. You're so wrapped up in your own kingdom, so insecure. Is that what's happening with Jesus here? Is Jesus so insecure that he's needing our praise and glorification? I don't think so. See, because God is the only being in the universe for which it is appropriate for him to say, look at me. Why? Well, first of all, because he's God. God is God and there is none like him. So for him to say, look at me, is not to say, I'm so insecure that I need you to look at me. Please look at me. It's God saying, I want you to behold what is ultimately good, ultimately worthwhile, and all that you were made for. In fact, God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. God doesn't need any single one of us to make himself feel better about anything. When God created us, it wasn't like he was saying, you know, now I wonder how I can scratch the itch of my needing to be complimented all the time. I know, I'll create humanity. God made us not out of a lack, but out of an overflow of his being. Take a look at Acts 17 with me. In verse 24, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in temples made by man. 
Yeah, he has a temple. Yeah, he had a tabernacle. But he did that as a, as a physical image of a spiritual reality. His grandeur, his glory, his orderliness. Verse 25, nor is God served by human hands as if though he needed anything. Since he himself, he's the source who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. When we praise and worship God, when we have Ian up here or Jonah or whoever else singing praises to God, we're not giving God something that, that, that he lacks. He's giving us something. When God asks us, commands us to enter his courts with thanksgiving in your hearts, he's not saying, I feel like I need to be thanked. God is saying, you need to experience your greatest joy at worshiping me because you were made for me. Your life is made for me. That's what we had last week's uh, revival, to live as Christ and to die as gain. In Colossians chapter 1, you see in verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, no matter what it is, all things were created through him. And here's an important phrase here, and for him. You were created through his being, and you are made for his being. So when we say to live as Christ, we mean that. We mean that. And when God invites us to praise, worship, and adore him, it's about saying, I understand my life's purpose. My life's purpose is about worshiping, glorifying, and, uh, and, and looking at the beauty and the glory of Christ. So when, when God says, worship me, it's understanding that we are made for him and that he himself is the greatest thing in the universe. Not a thing, the greatest joy in the universe that he could possibly give us. Therefore, we find our greatest and purest joy in worshiping him. It's not out of a lack in God that he commands us to worship. It's a lack in you. And therefore, when he says worship me, he's saying experience joy. Know what it's like to truly live. Plug this thing into the light socket and see how you light up. Understand what it means when God draws you to himself and says worship me. He's saying, live out your purpose. You were made for this. Jesus comes to them graciously in this parable anyway. He comes as the beloved son. God says, surely they're going to honor him. Surely they'll listen to him. They're going to respect him, verse 6 says. But they don't. You might be dishonoring God's son if you don't humbly submit to his firm and gracious leadership. I'm sure Jesus didn't come with his hat in his hand and slumped shoulders and say, hey guys, would you please worship me? Would you please honor my father? Jesus came and said, I am the son. I'm the rightful ruler of this estate, the rightful inheritor. Get off of my property. Of course, Jesus is always fully willing to be gentle and lowly to those who are lowly. And yet, these guys don't respond. They kill him. And you notice that it says in the, in the verse there that they killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So the imagery here is that they beat him, crucified him, like as they're going to. They take his body, and instead of giving it a decent burial, which would be expected at the very least, least common decency, instead they just take his body, which is mangled, bloody, and bruised now, and just toss it over the wall and let the birds of the air and the beasts of the field have at his body. They dishonored him. They don't respect, don't respond to him. He's got firm and gracious rulership that is shut off and put out to say no thank you. And it's at this point that you wonder if the owner of the vineyard has had enough. And of course, that's exactly what we see. How does the vineyard owner respond? Jesus answers. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? 
He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. That's obvious. Everyone expects it at that point in time. And at this point, I think the people around listening would say, yes, that's what we want. We're cheering for that. But then he says in verse 10, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it, was, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting Psalm 118, 118 which just a, a day before was the same psalm that was quoted when Jesus enters into Jerusalem. We call that the triumphal entry. As he was walking in there, sitting on a, on a, on a donkey, they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, the, the one who's coming to save us, Hosanna, which actually means save us, O God, Hosanna. He says, have you never read that? And, and they're saying to themselves, well, of course we have. He says, well, if you just read a verse after that, you'll notice that it says that the, 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 the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Cornerstone can mean one of two things. Uh, it can mean this, which the cornerstone, the, the headstone, the one at the very topmost part of the archway, it could be that. Or, and I think this is the more accurate understanding of it, the cornerstone, which is how the building was leveled and measured. It's the stone that everything else is contingent upon. Today, we don't use a cornerstone unless we're using it for fancy decoration. We have different instruments. But in those days, a cornerstone would be used for the, the integrity of the building. Everything about the building depended upon the cornerstone. It was all built around that. So when Jesus says, Quoting Psalm 118, he says, have you not read the story about the fact that they picked up that boulder, they picked up that stone and said, ah, not good enough, tossed it out. He says, isn't it interesting that you guys reject the cornerstone, but God takes that same cornerstone and makes it the foundation of all that that building depends upon. Have you not read that story? Who do you think that's talking about, guys? And of course, Jesus is looking at them fully aware of the fact that they, he knows and they know that he knows that they want to kill him and murder him. Looks at them and says, you guys are going to kill me. I know that. But scripture tells me that despite what you want, God's going to have his way. And he's going to install that cornerstone, that rejected stone as the cornerstone of the new building. Verse 12, they understood fully what he meant by that. Because they were seeking to arrest him. But they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him and they went away. Luke chapter 20, and the parallel account of this story, says this. In Luke 20, verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. Excuse me, they knew that he was speaking against them, and so they wanted retribution. All right, Jesus, you want to play hardball? Let's play. I love that. Because Jesus allows them to, he, he sparks up in them something that was already there. Jesus didn't make them, you know, give them animosity against him. He sparks it up in them by saying, I am the Lord. I am the, I'm the cornerstone. I am the son that you threw over the wall. And so they begin plotting. You know, I could just see them doing the, the thing where it's like, oh, we're going to get this guy. And the, the, the beauty of this is that Jesus knows full well what's about to take place, but he also knows who's in full control over the entire story. That's what they do. They forget who's in control. Step three to a terrible life. Dismiss God's sovereignty. Stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. I love the idea of AI, artificial intelligence. I, I hope that artificial intelligence gets even better. But it's interesting because today, now we're at a place in our techno technological advancement where we can put computers against people and see who wins. With chess and checkers and simple games that have rather simple components to it, it's, it's easier to program a computer against a human being. But what about a game that is so complex and so complicated that there are as many possible moves as there are atoms in the universe? 
There's a game like that. It's called Go. It's a game that's thousands of years old. Primarily a Chinese game. People play it in China a lot. You've seen this on maybe TV. You'll see people playing this game. And so the game has become popular for that very reason. Recently, computer scientists were able to program a computer using artificial intelligence to learn the game and to play it. Well, that's part one. But as I told you, it's, there's so many different move variations that scientists who program computers say, there's no way we can do this. It's just too complex. With chess or any other game, the fewer the moves, the better, because we could put that in the computer and say, okay, if this person does this, you do that, right? Ones and zeros, very complicated ones and zeros. But now, thanks to AI, it doesn't matter that there are 10 to the 82nd number of atoms and therefore 10 to the 82nd number of moves on the game go, we can now create, we can create a computer that is smart enough to outmaneuver the other person on the, at the table. So they put it to the test and they got the world's best, greatest champion of the game go. How do you think that game went? Former Go champion, def- beaten by deep mind, retires after declaring AI invincible. Gives up! Says, forget it! I can't beat this! This is over! <laughs> Guys, I know what happens next. Once this happens, here's the next foreseeable future. It's over for us. Get ready. The, de- <laughs> the guy gives up and says, there's no way to beat AI. I wish some people would understand God in that same way, where we could say, you know, there's no way to beat you, God. You were incalculably awesome. You, your, your steps, your ways are beyond my understanding, my, my way to uh, comprehend you. I give up. You win. We need that. We, we think God's sovereignty has something square, like something we can understand. It's, it fits in this nice little category of boxes where we say God is sovereign. What does that mean? Well, you might be dismissing his sovereignty. First and foremost, if you think God's threats are empty, let's start with that. The, 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 the guys who were throwing out the tenants understood that what they were doing was going to require the owner to come in full force. That's what everyone expected. There was a threat there, even though it was veiled. You keep on rejecting my servants, you're going to get it. You're going to get it. We can do the same thing when we think that God's threats are empty. In about 50 AD, a couple years, so about 15, 20 years after Jesus had died, the, the, the heat and the tension between Jerusalem and Rome was growing, such that in 50 AD, when there was the, the Jewish Passover, there was a Roman tower that sat above the, 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 the temple square where they could see the Jews. Now remember, at that point in time, you're looking at about 100,000 Jews who would attend this Passover because it was that important. And Josephus, the Roman historian, tells a story where he says that the Roman, one of the Roman guards lifted up his robe and bent over indecently. Okay? Wait for it. That's not the punchline yet. He lifts up his robe, bent over indecently, and he turned his backside toward the Jews and made a noise as indecent as his posture. How do you think the Jews felt about that? Well, I don't know who heard or who saw, but the Jews were in revolt. It was a riot. They were so angry at such an indecent, antagonistic event. So they began to ride against the Roman authorities. And what do you think happened? The Jews lost upwards of 30,000 men and women because they revolted against their Roman authorities. Fast forward about 15 years, you now are under the rule and reign of Emperor Nero, the name that you are well familiar with. Emperor Nero understands the Jews are rebelling again, so what does he do? He sends General Vespasian to go do his bidding. He takes with General Vespasian about 60,000 Roman soldiers to obliterate the Jewish people. However, as he's doing his work, he finds out, General Vespasian, that King, not King, Emperor Nero had committed suicide. Vespasian sees an opportunity to seize the throne, and so he retreats. He goes back to Rome, and then once he secures the Roman seat, 
He sends his son, General Titus, to finish the work that he'd begun. August 5th, 70 AD, that's exactly what General Titus does. He takes all of his Roman, uh, Roman soldiers and obliterates the Jewish people. He tears down the temple stone by stone, leaving only one wall standing. That wall wasn't the temple itself. It was part of the temple mount, what would, well, what would host the temple. So there's one wall that remains standing, but everything else of Jewish lineage was utterly destroyed. Fire, chaos, the whole nine. Thousands died. And on top of that, the whole Jewish system was obliterated. Here's why. Everything about their record keeping was in the temple. You know, who were the Levites? Who were the priests? Who was of the right lineage who could serve in the temple? Destroyed. Gone. Romans did that in 70 AD. You know what Jesus said about that? Jesus said, if you continue to reject me, Jerusalem, <laughs> Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you continue to reject me, here's what's going to happen. This temple is going to be smashed because God's displeasure is upon you because you're rejecting the Son. That one wall still stands today, by the way. It's often called the Wailing Wall. You know, people will stand there rocking and praying and doing their Jewish thing. That wall's still there. You know, it dates back to 8070. If you ever make your way to Jerusalem, you get to go see that. There was a last stand at Masada, which is a, uh, King Herod's, I guess, vacation home. Uh, a bunch of rebel Jews went up to the tower, created a fortress up there, and tried to withstand the Roman occupation as long as they could. But in 72, 74 AD, they were eventually demolished because the Romans built a rampart. See that there? See that? Uh, I guess I could circle it here. Yeah, that little section there. The, the Romans built that. I mean, over a course of years, they built that and eventually made their way to the top of Masada, only to find out, according to Josephus, that they killed themselves. They committed mass suicide rather than to surrender to, to the Roman authorities. God's threats are not empty. They're serious. They're real. You might also be denying or dismissing God's sovereignty if you think his ways are simple. I don't mean simple as in, you know, it's easy to understand his word in some, in some sense. You know, it's not, God says don't murder, don't lie. Those are pretty simple sentences and sayings. But when we think about the way that God operates in the world, it's easy to say, well, if I do this and this person might do that. But God is always thinking about every single human being. Not only does he know what we're doing, but he knows our inner thoughts, which if you're like me, your thoughts can sometimes go like a million miles a minute. Um, sometimes my mouth can't even keep up with what I'm thinking. I'm just thinking, I'm like, oh, stuff that's happening. Some of it I never finish, some of it I continue. But I mean, think about that. God knows everything that's happening, will happen, has happened. He can see in your heart, in your mind with perfect fluid clearness. It's like the difference between looking at the outside of a clock, or a watch rather, a mechanical watch, and seeing the inside operate. The outside looks pretty simple and, and routine, but when you look on the inside, you notice that there's intricate machinery that's taking place. It's like, wow, that's a lot more fancy than I realized. When you think about God and how he goes governs the universe, you have to see God not as a simpleton, someone who's simply trying to do things to get by. God is orchestrating every single thing in the universe. You know what I said about the atoms, 10 to the 82nd power? God knows the atoms. God is controlling every single thing in the universe at the same exact time, and his power and his ability cannot be overstated because he, he does it all with perfect, flawless wisdom and logic. God is sovereign. When we say that, we're saying God is beyond us. Sometimes we'll say, God, why did you do it this way? Why, did you, why, didn't you get, I, why didn't I pass the test? Why didn't I get with that guy or that girl? Why didn't, uh, you know, why didn't this thing work out in my family? Why did my parents divorce? Why didn't my, my mom? She's not a believer. Why is she not a believer, God? Why can't you do this, this, and this? And God is God. You can't shake your fist at God and expect God to be like, well, let me tell you. Let me explain it to you, and hopefully you understand this. Again, we've used this analogy before. It's like you trying to explain the internet to an ant. It's just not going to compute. Not going to make sense. God is God, and your brain is, excuse me for saying this, too puny 
for you to understand the ways of God in its fullness. And we should embrace that. That should be a joy to us and not a discomfort. You might be dismissing God's sovereignty if you fear people more than God. And that's the problem with the tenants. Scribes, Pharisees, they feared the people. Why? Because they, they wanted their approval. They wanted the power. They wanted the accolades. And they wanted that more than they wanted their Messiah. May that never be for us. Mark chapter 12 teaches us that there's, some, there's a bad way to live, a, a way that ultimately ends in destruction and penalty and, and problematic eternity for us. And that starts with dishonoring his word or dis, despising his word, dishonoring his son, and dismissing his sovereignty. I'm willing to bet that there's a few of you in here who are in that area. As believers, this is going to look a little different for you, obviously. It's a matter of degree. How much do you love God's son? How much do you love God's word? How much do you cherish his sovereignty? For unbelievers, that's you. You, dis, you despise his word, dishonor his son, you dismiss his sovereignty. I plead with you, as I think scripture does, rightly so, respond. God is sending you a servant right now. You may not like me, but I'm the servant right now. Here to say, hey, the master is willing to forgive if you will, but lay down your tools, lay down your defenses, and seek him, and he will forgive. He is gracious and ready. Please don't dishonor the son. Please don't dismiss God's sovereignty or despise his word. Let today be the day that you get right with your maker. Let's pray. God.